G'day, I'm Sam. Welcome to the Dance Culture Vibe podcast, where I take a look at the history and impact of dance music culture around the world. I'm a self-confessed rave nerd, and I invite you to join me on this journey. Let's get into it. How good were the 90s? I know, I know, nostalgia's not what it used to be, but let's try and look at things objectively. Culturally, the 90s were unreal. We got grunge music, Britpop, The Web, hypercolor t-shirts, and this feeling of optimism that infused into the mainstream through design, architecture, and media. Everywhere you looked, things were just bright and full of movement. It might have been because I was young, but I think even the older generations felt that way at the time. Francis Fukuyama published his now obviously incorrect but widely acclaimed at the time thesis, The End of History, in which he argued, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, humanity had reached the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy was to be the final form of human government. Poor old Francis. Certainly looked that way at the time. Where am I going with this? Well, the point I'm getting at here is that only in the 90s could a broadcast TV show like Trainspotters TV have existed. Today's guest is the show's host, Colin Rothbart. The basic premise of the show was that Colin and his co-host would travel to clubs around the UK, interview random punters, DJs and promoters. The show was irreverent, messy and relatable, and in a pre-YouTube world, it was likely one of the few authentic windows into club culture. The experience of watching Trainspotters TV is similar to the feeling of coming to consciousness mid-conversation with some random in a chill-out room. It's a bit disorientating, a bit frivolous, but also profound in the way that it brings us sharply into the present moment. In this episode, we talk about what it was like to get paid to party, the hacienda in its heyday, hanging out in Fukushima, and much, much more. Here he is, Colin Rothbart. Um, I think, like, when I was a teenager, I mean, I was brought up in North London, so I used to go out to, um, you know, to, like, um, to bars and clubs. Like, I remember going to the Hippodrome when I was, like, 14 years old, but I always had to get the last train back. So that was, like, at midnight, which is obviously when it always was, like, getting going at those uh, in, in those days. So, um, yeah, so I suppose, like, the first time when I properly, like, went to like raves or um you know went to like full-on clubs was I suppose like in when I was at uni actually because like when I was at school I had to like um um yeah I, I went to sort of quite a difficult school where we had like a lot of homework and stuff like that so yeah I would go out um before that and I wasn't I certainly didn't take any sort of like class A's or anything like that I was quite anti it actually and then I remember when I went to um I had a year off um did normal stuff like I used to get drunk and stuff and that was my sort of like clubbing experience and um but yeah and then I remember going I was at university in Manchester so I was like um 18 and um I remember uh going to this amazing club called PSV in a really rough part of Manchester called Hume and it was just incredible like everyone was completely off their face and um and I remember just getting really drunk on like snake bite and blacks and stuff like that and and um seeing like um you know like it, it was like amazing like dance acts and obviously everyone else was like on something and I remember going home 
And then my flatmates who stayed out and they all took stuff basically um, went, oh, you should have stayed out last night. We ended up in this like amazing rave in the estate. And then we went to this other after party and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hmm. I'm sort of missing out here. So um so I suppose that was probably when I sort of changed um and then started, you know, indulging a little bit. Was the rave in the estate a place called the kitchen? Oh god, that was that in Manchester? Yes, it was basically two apartments in an estate that were had the walls knocked down and it was an after hours. Oh god knows. Do you know what I've all, I know that we used to go to like illegal raves and stuff. That you, there was like two big promoters that put stuff on. One was called Freedom to Party, and one was called Funhouse. And um, actually, another one was called Pollen as well. And they used to do like um, illegal raves in sort of like derelict warehouses or churches in sort of central Manchester or um, you know just all over the place really. And yeah, it didn't and you just get a you just get like. Um, Obviously, no one had mobile phones in those days because it's like 1992, it was. Um, so you just got like a flyer and people would say, meet in the like Armitage Centre car park and then a coach would like pick us up and then take us to wherever it was going to be. And yeah, it was amazing. How did you interpret those first experiences? Did it feel like a complete revolution? Did it feel just like a hedonistic night out? Um, I think... Um, you know, coming from uh, like where I'd come from in like in in North London, so I was like, you know, I'd just been, uh, you know, yeah, like I say, my my sort of like clubbing had mainly like revolved around getting, you know, drunk, and it wasn't really so much for the music. This was definitely for the music, and like you know, just like um, you're meeting everyone from all different walks of life, and it's like you know, if you haven't like lived away from home before then it was just like being thrown in the deep end in a different city i felt that i could like completely um be myself but i wasn't completely myself yet but yeah i think it's interesting the context of that because kids growing up these days immediately have a window into everyone else's lives back then it really was very divided right yeah i mean i suppose i mean i i'm gay now i'm like openly gay but i wasn't at the time and I remember going, um, and my first sort of exposure to um, the gay scene was actually when some straight people said to me, "Oh, do you want to come to this amazing um, gay night at the Hacienda?" And the Hacienda is, you know, quite an iconic club in in Manchester. And um, uh, I've been to the straight nights there, which were incredible. And I went to this gay night called Flesh, and that was the first time I'd really properly sort of, um, you know, been in somewhere which was so like hedonistically openly obviously gay and it sort of like shocked me a little bit because I was still in inverted commas straight and I was I had a girlfriend um and I just thought well you know um uh I would you know obviously I was like looking around and window shopping and stuff but I didn't want to sort of like taste the fruit the forbidden fruit yet so yeah but I did that a sort of like a year and a half later yeah Hacienda is absolutely legendary. <clears throat> what what do you feel made it so special at that time? Um, I just think it was because you had like a real um, everyone, you know, from all over the north of England and you know from further afield. You went to that place. I mean, like you know, Madonna did a gig there after it first opened in like eighty one, eighty two. 
Um, you had the sort of like the indie scene, which had been really big there with the Happy Mondays. You had um, like lots of students because Manchester had a, like a gigantic student population. You had the sort of like the rough, you had the, the sort of like the gang culture as well. So um, that was also there. So you had like people from all walks of life just mixing in one place. And I suppose, yeah, also the um, the fact that most people were on ecstasy was just, you know, just made it. It wasn't like there wasn't, you know, that there weren't really any fights there. Actually, there was a couple of things that happened, I suppose. <laughs> there were there were a couple of things that happened, but um, yeah, it wasn't like you know going into a sort of like a a pub and you'd never sort of like get the shit kicked out of you on the whole. There, it was just very sort of like accepting. And I think being at university, like you know, I mean, it, it didn't. Um, I I only ended up going into lectures probably like one or two hours a week because there was always something you know when you're 18 19 years old you go out every night don't you and it was especially yeah, it was, manchester it was yeah it was a, it was the best time to be there i was there for like five years from 92 to 97 and that was the um and then the hacienda shut in 97 and it was a perfect place to come out as well because the gay scene was so good it was like you know um probably in those days i'd say better than london what kind of music was big back then um well they had like i mean you you'd go to like so obviously all the rave places we used to go to like um there's a place called bowlers and they'd have like um all the big um dance acts like dream frequency or um like the bass heads doing like live pas and um yeah it's all sort of like um you know mcs over the top of like you know house music basically and like very vocal house music piano italo house all that sort of stuff so from there how did you land the gig with train spotters um so i left uni in 97 and i um did a um, um a show called the big breakfast so i, I wanted to start in tv so i, I was a, a runner on the Big Breakfast, which was a sort of like a madcap breakfast TV series. Um, and um, after my contract finished there, they um, were advertising for a new youth channel, which was called Rapture TV, which is going to be based in Anglia TV in Norwich. So they said, um, you know, I got the job and they said, oh, look, you can um, do any program that you want to do. So I just said, well, I like clubbing and I like traveling. Can I do a clubbing travel show? And they went, yeah, you can, as long as you can fund it. So um, I was like, okay. Um, so these days it wouldn't be allowed, but in those days it's, it sort of was. Um, but we approached the, I pro- I approached the airlines um, and I said, oh, look, we'll do a little sequence of um, getting on the plane and, you know, we might see your logo. And um, then we get the clubs to pay for our accommodation um and um and and also our um like food and stuff and whatever and we had like a very very limited budget i mean it was like shockingly limited um like i think our, we did a whole one hour tv program for six thousand pounds which is just like unheard of like these days a tv show that's an hour long would be you know about two hundred thousand pounds so um yeah it was very limited budget um but um and it started off with me and the presenter called Leisha just um going into nightclubs with one camera and um i'd film her while she was presenting and she'd film me while i was presenting and we'd always have to wait till the end of the night to interview the djs so we were always very wasted because all the you know we always have like 
unlimited drinks and everything else and like clubbers were you know buyer staff and so by the time it got to six in the morning we were a little bit the worst for wear which i think you can probably see in some of the footage everyone including the hosts looked smashed on that show i think that was that was really what made it feel authentic as well yeah yeah i mean and we had a lot of fun doing it i mean when i look back it was exhausting because we would do um like five days um in the edit suites, editing the previous week's footage, it was, and me and Leisha, the presenter, would do that as well. I mean, we'd have like three other people working in the office and a couple of editors. And then on the Saturday morning, we'd do a live show in Norwich. And then we'd have buses that would wait outside the clubs um, in God's Kitchen, for example, in um, Birmingham and Cream in Liverpool or wherever. And then they would take the clubbers who'd been up all night down to the studio in, in Norwich um, and then at one o'clock we they'd be in our audience and we'd um we'd uh, film the live show and they'd like be collapsing under the lights and stuff. It was yeah, it was quite funny. And then what we'd do is we'd get um in the car and we'd go off to film like a festival in the UK somewhere, or sometimes we'd go abroad, like you know, we'd you know, go to Milan or we'd go to New York or something for like two or three days. And then we'd go to a, one club, finish there, probably also then film the after party. And then the cameramen or women would like come with us as well. And everyone was just having a laugh anyway. And then often you, the promoters would invite you back to theirs and we'd have another party. And then we'd go to another city and then we'd film another one. And then we'd like um, have to go back to Norwich. We'd have like um, half a day off um, to try and sleep. And then we'd spend yeah the rest of the week editing it together. And then we'd do it all again a week later. And we did it for like three and a half years. That's amazing. I, I can't even imagine how you managed to do that for three and a half years. Well, I was young, I suppose. I was like 24. So <laughs> you've got more stamina. <laughs> there are a few episodes I wanted to ask you about. First of all, one of my favorite moments was when in 1999 at Cream, you asked Harry Enfield, what's the creamier substance you've ever produced? Oh, yeah. I really, I've heard a lot that he is really into the scene and the culture. And obviously that was partly what inspired Kevin and Perry Go Large. Can you speak to any of that background at all? Um, well, you, at one thing, when you, especially when you went to Ibiza, that's one place where you'd always bump into celebrities or footballers and whatever. And we'd go up to them and we'd always have a stupid question. So like it was, as we're at Cream, what's the cream of substance you've ever produced? Or like... Or we'd say, as we're at the Canal Club, what's the biggest thing you've ever had up your waterway tonight or something like that? And then normally people, because they're a bit wasted, even if they were celebs, they'd answer the questions. And it was always, we didn't, I don't even think we got release forms actually. But, um, you know, everyone was quite up for it. And so we had, yeah, you'd have like big DJs, some of whom took themselves very seriously and some of whom would definitely have a laugh with you. Um, But yeah, it was like, you know, people like Carl Cox was always really funny. Um, I'm just trying to think who else would have found. And then often, like, yeah, if you've been interviewing them, then you'd go off and you'd just, like, you know, go off to some after party with them or back to their hotel room, and certain people were just, yeah, more up for that than others. Were there noticeable differences between the scenes? I mean, you look at the episode at Sunday Central versus the episode of Bagley's. Um, They seem culturally different, and obviously the music is different. Can you speak to that a bit? Um, I think that outside of London... And I'm talking about in the UK now. I'd say that um, people got so wasted, like really quickly. It was, I mean, when you were interviewing people, they'd be properly gurning and they'd be, you know, it was, that was always funny 
always funny. I think people in London like were a little bit, they thought they were a bit cooler and they didn't really want to do that. But somewhere like Bagley's was similar, I'd say. In I mean, the music was different to Sunday Central, which was really hard. So if you went to like a sort of like a, a trance club, like a Gatecrasher, or to uh, yeah, or somewhere like um, God's Kitchen or wherever, then yeah, then or Sunday Central especially, then the the very the speed of the music basically meant that people would just be more twatted. Whereas if you went to sort of like a um, a sort of a, a more like chilled Miami type vibe, then it would be like different sort of, a different sort of like um, type of crowd. I think there's definite correlations between drugs that are trending and the music um you know when you look back to the early 90s stuff with all the euphoric house i felt like that reflected the experience of mdma much more so than something like you know minimal techno today um uh, there's a great book called uh energy flash i think it was released in the uk but it was under a different title out here ecstasy generation by simon reynolds and he he talks about these studies i think they were out of holland where they look at the purity of ecstasy pills and they compare it to trends in music. And as speed started to uh, find its way into more pills than MDMA, the music got harder and faster and the culture sort of changed. So do you think that maybe that had any impact on um, on what was going on in the North or was it a, more of just a general cultural thing? I don't know. I'm just trying to think because, I mean, when I was 22, I went, I lived in, I moved to Berlin for six months I actually I went to go and visit a friend and it was before mobile phones and so I thought I'd surprise her and I arrived at the airport and um said um I called her up at home and she went um oh I said surprise I'm here at the at Tegel airport and she went well you can't stay I said what do you mean I said I, she goes I'm going to Prague now um I said well what am I going to do then she went I don't know just go out to a club and I'm sure you'll meet someone so I thought, oh, that's nice. So I ended up going to this club, which is like um, the precursor to Bergheim. It was called Averk, and this is like 1995. And um, there I was taking pictures, and then this guy um, came up to me and just went, what are you doing? You're not allowed to take photos in here. And I, I said, well, how do you know? And he went, oh, because it's my club. I was like, oh, right. So anyway, um, I ended up um, staying with him for a few months, and that was like incredible because it was like, you know 1990s berlin the wall had just come down and there they had like you know amazing um you know mdma and and pills and stuff like that and i think that but the music was really sort of like quite heavy techno because you know the germans obviously love their techno so i don't know i think like and then going to gay clubs in london in the 90s i think that was also um I mean, like, if you went, there was an after-hours club called Trade, and that was, uh, you know, pretty hard music, actually. They had, like, a well, they had a trade light room, and they had a, a sort of a main room. Um, but that, pff, I, I just think, I don't know, I think there's just different scenes, aren't there? So you'd have, like, your more um, housey scenes, which were, like, running alongside the sort of, like, trance scenes. So you'd have, yeah, your things like your gatecrushers, but they were still you would still have like Ministry of Sound, which would be like more masters at work. And then you'd have like, um, yeah, like, you know, places like, I'm just trying to think, like Miss Moneypennies, which was more like Piano House. And then you'd have Back to Basics in Leeds, which was like housey and not really techno. But then you'd have um, 
there was a really big techno night where Sven Vase used to play, and I can't remember what it was called now, but that was also like in, in Leeds. So I think, I don't know, I think all these, like, you know, at the same period, you just have like different styles of music, don't you? I think like even now, you go to um, Bergheim in Berlin and you've got like a techno room and then you've got sort of like, you know, like house upstairs. And I think, yeah, I mean, there's always been stuff like, speed and stuff around hasn't there and i suppose people that maybe like uh more into that um would go to like a a more hard like hard house night i suppose but then you know i used to go to those as well and i you know i suppose it's just like whatever floats your boat really could you tell us a bit about your bar oh yeah it's a bar it's called the glory and um it's in um the east end in london it's a sort of a, a cabaret bar that's also uh, it's probably like uh, a mixed a predominantly gay bar though as well but we obviously let straight people in of course and yeah it's fun it's open till like two three in the morning we do like big events there as well and um we have like different club nights and djs and i just hope that we're going to reopen again when um all this coronavirus madness ends mm, what's the capacity it's about um 300 people and yeah. what's the shed because i've seen on instagram mm-hmm. you post about the shed is that just a private uh yeah. little backyard so i've got so i've always liked putting on parties so since i was like i suppose um you know even when i was a teenager uh and then i used to live above a pub and i got evicted from this pub because i used to like have parties there and people with you know one time someone like did a uh, Mooney and a tray of banoffee pies and the, I got evicted and then I ended up getting my own place in Hackney and um, that was about 12 years ago and um, built a had this little shed in the back garden and if we have a party we've been to a club and we'd have a few friends back people always end, used to end up sitting in there so um, it was a bit of a death trap because we had uh, like broken glass and toilet seats and stuff and um, so I thought I can't really afford an extension. So what I'll do is I'll just get a bigger shed. And I looked online and it said that you can have like, um, you can have like a, a wooden building and you don't need like proper planning permission. So I've just got a big shed and I got a light up dance floor in it. And it's sort of become a bit of an institution in East London. And, um, we have like, yeah, quite big parties. We used to do it every weekend and I was going to get like a, a proper asbo, which was like a sort of, uh, a sort of quasi-criminal record thing um, for for um, noise. But, and we'd have like, yeah, three, four hundred people and we'd have, yeah, it was it's it was really, really fun. Um, but not if you were my neighbour, probably. And we did, we'd have like really good DJs play. We'd have like people like Mark Moore, Danny Rampling, loads of other people who like were quite big on the scene in East London. Um, and yeah, it was, um, it was fun. And we, so now uh, I don't do um as many parties because i'm a bit older but i i still do it like i'll definitely do one obviously when this coronavirus thing ends but i did i do i do probably about six or seven a year and they're like yeah for like four or five hundred people and um yeah yeah they're fun really fun we've got a hot tub as well and it's just they go on till like sunday night from saturday night often that sounds fantastic danny rampling in a private shed party yeah it's fun how did you go from train spotters to directing dark tourists? Well, yeah, I, I just sort of I've been working in TV since I was um, 
24 since I started on the Big Breakfast. And then I did the the, the sort of like the clubbing travel show. And then I ended up um, doing Moving Behind the Camera. And I did uh, lots of sort of um, documentaries. And I've always had a personal interest in um, dark tourism anyway. So I do that in my spare time. I would go to like um, Chernobyl. I went, you know, like before it was fashionable about probably like seven, eight years ago. I went to like, um, you know, I just would like to see macabre places and like places I've always like, um, you know, um, reading up about serial killers. And so this was a sort of dream job. And a friend of mine who I'd worked with in TV before contacted me and said, oh, I've got a perfect show for you. Um, it's called Dark Taurus um, with a guy who's a... Um, uh, made uh, a documentary a documentary that's on Netflix at the moment called Tickled, called David Farrier, and I think you'd really get on. And um, why don't you? Um, why don't we interview for it? So I, yeah, I did an interview, and then I moved to Auckland for um, a year, and then did these like amazing um, things, like interviewed um, the recently deceased hitman of Pablo Escobar, Popeye. Um, we filmed everything from like yeah, going, we went to Fukushima, we went to um, we filmed like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer tours in Milwaukee. We filmed voodoo festivals in Africa. We filmed um, weird um, sort of uh, burial rites in Indonesia. Um, you know uh, what else did we do? Sort of like um, gang culture in Mexico City. And South Africa, we did um, Doomsday Preppers. Everybody, really. Yeah, I mean, it's still on Netflix, so yeah, you can watch it. It was, yeah, it was fun. Really, I highly fun. recommend it. That Fukushima yeah. episode scared the shit out of me. We, ne- <laughs> how nervous were you approaching it? I was really nervous. I think no one really knew. Um, the I didn't really understand. Obviously, I've been to Chernobyl before, and I even took my Chernobyl um, Geiger counter with me, but I just didn't like um, really know how bad it was going to be and so like a, a normal city for example like LA or London the background radiation should be about probably 0.05 or something and I was told that we weren't going to be anywhere that was more than 0.15 and as soon as I even got to my hotel which wasn't even in the zone it was 0.14 so I called the office and I went oh just to let you know and they went oh don't worry I'm sure it will be um you know fine and we got in the car and we were driving through um the Fukushima area and it went up to like five in the car we weren't even we were driving at speed and I was like this is obviously not good um and then our fixer took us to this place and he didn't warn me that it was like really high radiation so I got out of the car my guy counter was going crazy and it went up to like about 28 so that's about probably like 900 times higher than a normal city. And it sort of felt a little bit weird in the air, but I don't know if that was just me imagining it. And then I put it on the floor and it went up to 60, which was like, you know, almost 1800 times higher than it should be. So um, we stayed there for about four or five minutes. And then I just said, oh, look, I don't feel comfortable staying here. And I called the office and went, get out now, get out. Um, so, but we were told when we came back, because um, we were obviously, I was doing a recce then, and we had to go back and film it too, um, that the amount of time that, uh, you know, we actually spent there wasn't going to be dangerous um, long-term, but, you know, time will tell, I suppose. But yeah, it was like crazy place. We're sort of living in that now, because it was like, it was like going through deserted streets 
and seeing like abandoned, you know, well, we're not you haven't got abandoned cars and stuff, but you've got like deserted streets at the moment because of this virus, haven't you? I uh, I think it was 2012, 2013, I hitchhiked from Toronto to Detroit and couch surfed uh, in a building that used to be a department store. Yeah. And um, the artists that were squatting in there had beds made up in like all the old drawers that used to be the home to all the all the clothes and stuff. And we, we did a bit of a tour around Detroit at the time, which was just unbelievable. It was like the yeah. end of the world. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of similar. Um, they, actually, have an, also, they have an amazing club, amazing club scene there as well. Well, yeah, that's one of the sort of birthplaces. Mm. Interestingly, though, um, some of those DJs when they came over to the UK, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm drawing this from that Simon Reynolds book. They were kind of horrified at the way that the music was, the culture that had sprung up around it, because they'd mm. never seen anything like that in the US at the time. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. I mean, I, I wasn't around in, in the States in the 80s. I assume there were still always, you know, drugs present. But I think, you know, in in the UK, it would probably was like times 10. And then you had, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose just people gurning. I, I mean, you know, when, when the house music started, it was pretty much, a, I mean, unless I'm pretty gay as well. And then you had, um, obviously, you had all the sort of like the, the huge, like, you know, black culture as well and it's in it, it, it merged the two and then in the uk i suppose it was just it was it was like um yeah, it just went very mainstream and you had like you know illegal raves all over the country you had um you know the sun doing the, our main tabloid paper doing a um a big uh sort of you know anti uh anti-rave culture peace and then the the police getting increased powers and doing um the criminal justice bill and they had powers to um to break up these things and i think the the police and the government at the time viewed it as uh you know potentially too like revolutionary whereas actually you know most people there just wanted to go and just get off their face and have a a really good time the last thing they wanted to do is like you know smash up shops and be lager louts that was that's more of a drinking thing than a sort of like an ecstasy led scene have you seen the bbc put out a doco a few years back called summer of rave about 1989 Uh, and there was an interview with a guy called Cass, I can't remember his last name, but he was from one of the football firms and yeah. he was running the security. And in his eyes, rave culture caused the end to a lot of that football violence. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that, that, that there's some truth in that. And I also think that, you know, you'd had the, um, the 70s where, you know, the country, I, me- I remember growing up in the 70s, you know, the country was on its knees. We used to have power cuts all the time in the UK. Um, and then in the 80s, you had, you know, Thatcher, especially in the, in the north of England, you know, she closed down all the pits and like you had like, you know, huge mass unemployment. And then you'd have, you know, at the same time in London, you'd have like lots of very wealthy people, all the yuppies and the, the big bang cause like, you know, a, a huge amount of wealth. And you had, and the sort of dance culture was that great big leveler. So you would have, if you went to like a, a rave like in a field or whatever, you could have people who are like from a football firm or you could have gays or you could have like sort of like people from different races and stuff and everyone was getting on. So, you know, yeah, I think that probably did lead to sort of, um, you know, society changing. Obviously, you know, 
every every age has its scene you know in, in the uk we had the northern soul scene which was in the in the 70s as well which was lots of like b-sides of like of soul records where you know that was more speedy really and then you had like obviously you've got the chicago house scene um you've got like um you know the, the swinging 60s as well I mean, and you've got disco, of course. I mean, like, God, disco in the 70s. So the idea that people weren't taking drugs, you know, um, um, until rave culture is just nonsense because, of course, they were. I mean, the whole disco scene was full of cocaine and quaaludes and and whatever. But I think um, with disco especially, and, you know, it was a very New York thing as well, like with places like Studio 54, I don't know if that sort of, um, I mean, I wasn't there, so if it sort of, like, transcended and ended up in every single you know, city in America and in the UK. I mean, you know, if you went out to a normal uh, club on a Saturday night, yes, they might play Donna, um, Donna Summers, you know, I Feel Love or something like that. But did that mean that, like, the whole disco culture, which was also quite gay, um, you know, had permeated to that extent? I don't think so. I think it took rave culture to probably go across across those divides. Do you have a few top tracks or top DJs that you might want to suggest to people? Um, well, I mean, God, one of the track, one of the the tracks that I probably think is my all time, one of my all time favorites, just because it's got good memories of like when I first started going out in Manchester in 1992 was like "Your Love" by Prodigy. So I, yeah, that was like that, all, that, that. Always reminds me of the um, being in the hacienda and this that other club. That's from one of my favourite eras of dance music. That yeah. ninety one to ninety three breakbeat hardcore. Oh yeah, I saw them do like live PA's the whole time. So they were yeah that, that club that I mentioned before in in Manchester um, called Bowlers. They would have a live PA. It was like six thousand people like you know rubbing vicks into their each other's sort of like necks and <laughs> and shoulders like till like two in the morning and then you'd all like, always go off to some like after party in a field or like a, a like a church or something like that um and yeah you'd have people like shades of rhythm you'd have the prodigy you'd have um dream frequency all of these people who were like really big bands at the time um you know oceanic doing insanity and stuff like that like live in the club and it was just like, um, and then to meet them when we did that club show, you know, five years later, it was just like amazing. But yeah, no, was, that's exactly what that's what, exactly what happened. And going to the Hacienda, they'd also have like these, like you know, they'd always have a couple of people who'd be the headliners, who were all the people who were doing the tracks at the time, who were also playing on top of the pops, you know. So because dance culture did go pretty mainstream you know you had like they call it ac just like um number one in like 1987 you had s express in like 88 you had you know all of these um you know the, these groups that were getting sort of like uh you know the shaman i saw the shaman live as well um you know uh it was in, yeah it was incredible it was just it was a really it was a great time to you know to see these sort of like these these dance acts in a, in a normal club setting everywhere, all over the country. But I was in Manchester, but and they all went there anyway. I just want to give a quick shout out. In the episode when you guys went to Berlin uh, and went to the Love Parade, um, oh God, at, yeah. the, at the very end, I'm going to ask you to tell me about what happened in that episode. But at the end, you bumped into an Aussie DJ called Nick Fish, who is oh, yeah. an absolute legend in Australia. Okay. Um, so shout outs to Nick Fish. Yes, definitely. That was like, um, that was probably one of the worst days of my life actually because we um 
it should have been one of the best. And I've been to like Love Parade before in Berlin, and I, you know, I'd, I'd lived there myself for like six months or so before. But we were on a float, and the um, camera guy said to me and the other presenter, "Why don't you go down into the crowd?" And we had these like cordless mics that we've just got, and then um, you know, just leave the stuff on the um, you know, on the on the on the um, float. And then we'll just do a really good piece to camera of you like like walking through the crowds and then you can run back onto the float. And we're like, yeah, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So we did. And then obviously the float then started going faster and faster and faster. And we were then we lost the signal. And like we started like doing these like frantic hand signals telling the float to stop, but of course they couldn't because um, you know, they were like going at speed. And then like the crowds like closed in, and then me and the presenter Simone. Um, ended up like holding these mics in our clothes with no money on us, no drink or anything else, and we were like just surrounded by like hundreds of thousands of people. I think there was a million people there that year, and it was just you know like when everyone else is having a good time and you just you just like weren't, and it was, like, even it. though it was just like oh no, because we just thought we've like left. We wanted to be back on the float with everyone, so. Anyway, we, and we couldn't go to the toilet, and we had to, oh, it was just a fucking nightmare. So we ended up, um, Simone pretended to faint, and then we got an ambulance to take us out, actually. And then we went back to the hotel, and then um, I think we had to go to this after party for with the promoters, and then we went to, I think we interviewed the Armand Van Helden or something. And then, yeah, that was quite funny. But yeah, that was not, that was not a good day. That was awful. I may be sort of like scared of crowds, actually, after that. And so when you got reunited with the crew, what was the vibe? Well, they got off to the party and they just like, we had, we just went to the hotel and went chain to get changed. And then we had, oh, that was a nightmare. We couldn't even get into the bloody party because we didn't know who we are because our press passes were on the bloody float. So it was a bit of a, it was a disastrous day. And then of course, when we did get in, we went completely crazy. But it was fun. Yeah. It was fun in the end. Yeah. It's always funny when you look back on it. Yeah. Is there anything that you want people to know about? Do you want people to find you on Instagram? Yeah, if they want to, they can find me on Instagram. I'm yeah, I'm Colin SOS on on Instagram. And yeah, if you're in London when all this madness ends, then come down to the glory, um, which is at two eight one Kingston Road, and the website's www.theglory.co. And we often like um do um performances and um sort of appearances in festivals around the uk as well fantastic um, yeah, and, yeah and go watch dark tourist watch dark tourist i also did a film actually called dressed as a girl which you can um get on itunes too which is about the sort of alternative drag scene in london which was on um netflix until um they took it off last year you can get it on itunes and that's really fun and then you can see the shed in it and then you can see a little bit of the glory as well check it out colin and thank you very much pleasure What an awesome career. It's easy to see why Network entrusted Colin to cover club culture. He's charming, he's quick, he's insightful, all in equal measure. I can only imagine what the show looked like behind the scenes, and I'm still laughing at the thought of people collapsing under studio lights on the on the set of the show the morning after being dragged in from the club. That's it for this week. I'm on all the socials with the Dance Culture Vibe account. I will be posting some additional content exclusively on the Instagram page in the coming weeks. So find me over there to see what's in store. Until next time, I will catch you all soon. Cheers.